You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning. Good morning. Hope you, this is our well-rested crew. A lot of yawns in the, in the first service. Um, maybe that was because I'm boring. Maybe it was because it's daylight saving time. I don't know. Either way, got a lot to do today. So if you got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 31. That's where we're going to be. My name is Clint, and I'm uh, one of the guys on staff, and so I'm thankful to be up here with you. If you've been with us, been a part of CBC, or been here at all this year, you know that we have been in a sermon series that's taken us through the second half of the book of Genesis. We started in chapter 25. We've made it to chapter 31, so we're six chapters in, but we're calling this series Meant for Good. And the reason why we're calling it Meant for Good is not because Bill and I are super clever. We're totally not. Um, it's because it actually shows up in the book of Genesis. So in the last chapter of the book, you don't have to turn there, but there's a guy named Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, and Joseph's brothers don't like him, okay? Not like they just pick on him and they kind of prank him every once in a while, but they really don't like him. They fake his death um, and they sell him to uh, a bunch of strangers as a slave. And so through a series of just really painful events for Joseph, just decades of difficulty in his life, he actually ends up saving his family from starvation Um, And we're gonna dig into that story uh, in a couple of months, but really, um, after uh, Joseph's uh, dad dies, after Jacob dies, his brothers are afraid that that Joseph's gonna use the power he has to basically pay them back. So they're scared for their own life, and they kind of run to Joseph, and they beg for their life, they beg for his forgiveness, and um, what happens is really profound, is Joseph looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good, right? So what's he saying there? He, in the midst of the fact that you have stole decades of my life from me and you have caused me an immense amount of pain, I believe that God was working through that pain. It's a crazy statement, meant for good, right? I think we, we can get all warm and fuzzy about certain Christian statements and, and verses, right? And so we like to put them on a watercolor background, a nice handwritten font, put them up over the mount, uh, mantle, stuff you see at Hobby Lobby, basically Pinterest. So if you search right now, meant for good, I'm sure you'll see what I'm talking about, right? We, we do this with certain statements, and I think sometimes we, it could be good to keep it in front of us, but sometimes we kind of cut the meaning out of it. Um, think about what this means. What you meant for evil against me. You intentionally tried to harm me, but God meant it for good. It means that Joseph has this perspective on life that says, despite the fact that you have disposed of me, and used me as a commodity for your own personal gain, my God is so big and so in control that he's working in all of it. That he's able to sovereignly work good through what you intended to harm me. And the question that I want us to answer this morning is where do we get that? Where do we get that perspective on life that is so content with God's presence and his protection that even if we were to have, like Joseph does, the opportunity to get back at the people who've wounded us, to get back at the people who've caused us pain in the past, even if we have that opportunity, where does this perspective come from where we would be able to say like Joseph says, God's working, it was meant for good. So we're gonna see that today in Genesis 31. And where we're picking up the story is with a guy named Jacob. So at this point in the story, Jacob has left home and he's not on vacation. He's actually running for his life because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And so along the way, um, he has this encounter with God. God meets him and shows up with him and God makes a promise to him 
And he actually makes the same promise to Jacob that he made to Jacob's father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. And really, this promise has three parts. It it culminates in one of them where God says to Jacob, I'm gonna bless you so that you might be a blessing, so that all the nations of the earth might be blessed through you. I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make you this great nation. I'm gonna give you offspring. I'm gonna bring you back and give you this land. So there's three parts to this promise that we've seen for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's offspring and land and blessing. So Jacob leaves home, has this encounter with God, gets this promise. He ends up 500 miles away from his home um, with his uncle Laban. And when he gets there, he falls in love with one of Laban's daughters, right? A woman named Rachel. And Jacob wants to marry Rachel, but he's broke. And so in this culture, there would be what was called a dowry or bride price. You would have to purchase your right to to marry a daughter. We don't do this in our culture. Uh, Maybe a cultural equivalent would be that Jacob was too broke to buy the engagement ring that she needed. Um, And so basically that's what happens. And so what they agree, uh, Jacob agrees to work seven years for Laban. Says, okay, I don't have any money, but I'll work for seven years and then I'll marry Rachel. So they agree to that. And then on the wedding night, um, Laban sends in Leah, his older daughter, instead of Rachel. I'm not sure how this goes down because somehow Jacob doesn't realize he's with Leah. Um, But he wakes up the next morning and I'm sure that was super awkward, right? Like, how, what, how do you handle that situation? That's a tense moment. You wake up and you, you think you're with one person and then someone else and you're like, hey, Leah, like, good to see you. You know, like, how, I don't even know how that works, but he works seven more years after that for Rachel, marries Rachel as well. And so now, between his two wives and their female servants, Jacob has 11 sons, and we saw this in the chart a couple weeks ago, Bill put up, 11 sons and one daughter, and he actually has another son on the way that he doesn't know it yet. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because I want you to see that through Jacob, God is making good on his promise. He's being faithful to the promise he made to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob that there's gonna be, I'm gonna make you a great nation. So we see the offspring. And then look what happens in Genesis 30, verse 25. It should be on the screen. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I might go to my own home and my country and give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you. And then in verse 30, he says, you had little before I came and it has increased greatly or abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, he says, when shall I provide for my own household also? So what he's saying is, I wanna take my family, I wanna go back home, I wanna go back to the land. And he says, I've been working my tail off for you and your business is booming, but I have nothing to show for it, right? So when is it gonna be time for me to kind of start my own company? That's what Jacob's saying. And Laban responds to him, he basically says, uh, you can't leave, not because uh, I want my grandkids to be here and I wanna spend time with my daughters, but because you're making me a rich man. And we saw how that played out last week, but six, years, six more years passed where Jacob works for Laban, and despite the fact that Laban tries to cheat him at every turn and just deceive him and just basically, he, he ends up, um, God ends up blessing him, and the Bible says at the end of chapter 30, verse 43, Thus the man, Jacob, increased greatly, and he had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So this phrase, increased greatly, it means to be exceedingly prosperous. A uh, a modern day translation might be, Jacob had deep pockets, all right? That's what's happening here. Um, And again, what you need to see now is Jacob has this great nation, or is becoming this great nation, he has this offspring, and now, because of God's faithfulness, he has all this material wealth, so he's getting the blessing because of God's faithfulness. So offspring and blessing, what's the missing piece? The land. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 31. So verse 1, chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, 
Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth, which is not true. Verse two, and Jacob saw that Laban now, his father-in-law, did not regard him with favor as he did before. So father-in-law, it's a little strained relationship. He doesn't like him anymore, right? You're not my best buddy anymore. Verse three, but then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob gets this promise from God and he gets instruction from God. And the instruction is, hey, I want you to go back to the land and the promise is that I will be with you. And then look what happens next, verse four. So Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was so they could have this conversation where no one would hear him. Verse five, and he said, I see that your father doesn't regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I served your father with all my strength and yet your father has cheated me and he's changed my wages 10 times but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away all the livestock of your father and given them to me. And in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. And then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So here's what just happened, because we talked a lot about goats and spotted and speckled and mottled, and I'm sure you're like, I know exactly how that applies to my life, right? Um, Jacob gets this instruction from God, go to the land, the promise is, I'll be with you, and that sounds super awesome and way straightforward, but it's not that simple. It's like last night, Bill sent me a text, and he said, hey, buddy, um, praying for you tonight, uh, we're praying for you as you preach tomorrow. Um, you lose an hour of sleep and so you need to go ahead, get to bed early, get some rest. And my response to him was, if only it were that simple, right? Because I have three small children, so now you understand. Um, this is how Jacob would respond, right? If only it were that simple, go back to the land and I'll be with you because Jacob has some problems. One of them is that he has two wives, two wives, right? And, and not only that, his wives are sisters and they don't like each other at all. This isn't like how it works out somehow happy, clappy on TLC, right? They don't like each other at all. Um, they spent the last 20 years of their life playing this game, trying to prove who's the better wife. Just this one-upsmanship, right? We covered this a couple weeks ago. But now the task before Jacob is that he has to try to convince not just one wife, but two, that we're gonna leave all this comfort and all this material wealth and success and we're gonna go live with my parents. That's not gonna go over well, right? That's not a good, uh, easy conversation to have. He has to convince them to leave everything they've ever known, everything that's comfortable and familiar to them and go to a place they've never been. And look how they respond, verse 14. And Rachel and Leah answer, and they say to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money all the wealth that God has taken away from our father, it belongs to us and to our children. So now then, whatever God has said, do. So in this crazy turn of events, Rachel and Leah actually agree, probably for the first time in a long time, they agree on something. Um, in verse 16, they say, we want you to do whatever it is that God told you. And what I want you to see here is why. What motivated them to agree to leave behind everything they know and go live with their in-laws? And the answer we just read there in their response. They say, he sold us. He devoured our money. He regards us as strangers. So what was happening here is uh, the 14 years that Jacob served Laban for the daughters should have been saved. It would have been saved as an inheritance, right? That's the kind of the cultural expectation. I'm gonna keep this money to bless my daughters with 
one day, right? This is the bride price, the dowry, that's what it was. But the Bible says that Laban spent all the money. And in verse 15, they say, are we not regarded as foreigners? So not only are we not being treated as daughters, we're not even being treated like guests. We're strangers to him. And the pain that they're feeling here, it actually goes much deeper because they say he sold us, right? He used us like commodities for his own personal gain. So imagine how that must have felt. Imagine how painful it must have been to be used by someone who you're supposed to be able to trust everything with. And some of you don't have to imagine that because you know. And maybe it wasn't your father, maybe it was your mom or a close family friend or, or who knows, but you, you know firsthand how painful it is to feel like you don't matter, to feel unloved and unseen. And this is where I honestly believe that Rachel and Leah were. This is what motivated them to treat each other the way they did because kind of this back and forth between the two of them because when you're treated like a commodity and used like a commodity, you tend to treat other people that way as well. But it's this place of pain, right, this wound from their father that actually leads them to agree to go with Jacob. And this isn't the first time we've seen this with Laban. This is how he treats everyone. This is what Jacob meant in verse six and seven when he says, you've seen how I've, with all my strength, I've served your, served your father, and yet he's cheated me. He changed my wages 10 times. That's what he's saying. Jacob has the same complaint against Laban, and he's talking to his wives, and he says, he used me and he used you to get me to stay, and then he used me more to build his business so that he could get ahead in life. And so here's where I wanna pause for a moment because this is the space in life that I was talking about earlier, that we need a, a meant for good perspective. It's because of moments like this where we come face to face with the realization that life has a way of just punching you in the mouth sometimes. And maybe you can handle the pain for a season, but, but eventually you get to the point where you just are done and you say, why does this keep happening to me? Am I alone in that? You get to that spot where you go, how could this possibly be meant for my good? And it's because of moments like this, we need a Christianity that goes deeper. And what I mean by deeper is that many of us grew up hearing about a shallow version of Christianity that was reduced to songs and sermons on Sunday I'm not saying that songs and sermons on Sunday are bad. They're actually really good. But if that's all Christianity is, it's not enough. We grew up hearing about a thin, shallow version of Christianity that says, hey, if you give your life to Jesus, then all your problems will be solved. You give your life to Jesus, and you're gonna have the family you want and the career you want. You're gonna get the white picket fence and the golden retriever in your whole life, happily ever after, you just skip off on into eternity. But that's not been our experience, is it? What you find out pretty quick is that even the people who do seem to get everything they want in life, even they aren't immune to pain. And so where does this perspective come from? This is this idea, what Joseph has, this contentment, this trust in God that says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So look again at verse five. Let me show you this. So Jacob calls Rachel and Leah into the field and he says this to him. I see that your father doesn't regard me with favor as he did before. Let's not smooth over that. That means that there is a super strained relationship between Jacob and his father-in-law. It's causing him pain. Life is now difficult as a result. And how, what's he say? But the God of my father has been with me. Verse six, you know, I've served your father with all my strength, yet he changed my wages 10 times and he cheated me. Into verse seven, what's he say? But God did not permit him to harm me. So what Jacob is saying here is really the primary thing that I want you to take away from this sermon this morning despite the fact that life for me has been painful, what he's saying is God has been at work in the pain. 
So real quick, how easy would it have been for Jacob to complain in this moment to his wives? How easy would it be for that conversation that we just read to go a lot different? You've seen how I served your father. You see how every day I got up before the crack of dawn, I spent time when it was cold and I was there when it was hot and I was busting my thumb when I was repairing the fences. You've seen how I've worked and he cheated me. Can you believe that? That's not what he says. It would be easy for Jacob to say, are you kidding me? I've done all this. And to turn that to God and say, "Are, are you kidding me? Is this what I get for faithfully serving you? And here's the thing, I think Jacob probably did have those feelings. You can't tell me after 20 years of being used and cheated that there weren't at least a few of those are you kidding me moments. I know you've been there. You're frustrated, but you're keeping it under control. You got it covered. You're bottling it up. And then just one more time, you stub your toe, you hit your thumb, and you're like, that guy Laban, right? Like it just comes out with that one moment. Jacob had those. But what's clear in this text is that at some point, he gets this meant for good perspective. Because as he's articulating to his wife, wives, here's what God has called me to do. And as he's recounting all the pain that has led him to this place, he says, God has been with me. God has been with me. So where does that perspective come from? Look at verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said this, lift up your eyes and see that all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled for this. This is what I want you to see, because we don't, we don't understand the goats and the sheep's piece. This is what we do understand. Verse 11, the end of it. I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Let me ask you this. When life gets difficult, when it's painful, are we not tempted to believe that God has abandoned us? Like, it's easy to come in here when life's going great and go, praise God, yes, brother, praise God, right? It's easy to do that. But what about when you come in here and life's difficult and you try to turn your heart's posture towards God? What's your disposition going, God, what happened? Why are you letting this happen to me, right? Even David, a man after God's own heart, he's writing the Psalms, King David, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me? I know, this is the common human experience. When life gets painful, we tend to turn to God and say, why have you abandoned me? And God says to Jacob, I have seen it all, all the pain. Which means, not only has God seen Jacob in the big moments of his life where Laban cheated his and changed his wages and threw Leah into the tent instead of Rachel. Not only did he see the big moments, but he also saw the small moments because God says, I've seen it all. Every eye roll, every passive aggressive comment, God sees it all. And I think a lot of time we believe that God sees us and he cares about the big moments of our lives, but we have a difficult time understanding that God cares about the small moments of our life. And here's what we miss in that. Every one of our moments are small moments to God. Right, God who created the universe, the God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere at once and yet somehow attentive and caring for every single one of our needs, that God, every single one of our moments are small to him. No matter how big they are to us. Psalm 103 says this, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone. Psalm 8. David says, when I look at the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. When I think about how big you are and how you created everything, you put the moon and the stars in place. When I think about that, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care? All of our moments are small moments to God and yet still he says, I see them all. And so this morning, if, if the pain of your life, no matter how big or small it may be, if the pain of your life has you feeling forgotten, you'd be encouraged because God sees and he knows. But that's not all we need for this new perspective. It's not just that God sees and knows, it's also that he cares. I need you to see this, verse 12. God says to Jacob in a dream, lift up your eyes and see. I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Verse 13, he says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and you made a vow to me. He says, now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, in Genesis 28, uh, Jacob um, was running from home. All his sin, his past failure had caught up to him. He had caused pain to everyone in his family. He runs out of the house. He's broken, afraid, and alone. And God shows up in that place and meets him in the most broken and shame-filled place of Jacob's life up to that point, God meets him and he says, I'm with you. And he makes this promise to him. He says, I'm the God of Bethel. Jacob names that place Bethel because it means house of God. He's with me. And this is what God wants to remind Jacob of. This is what gives him new perspective. So when he says, hey, lift up your eyes, he's saying, I'm the God who met you in the most broken place of your life. I was faithful then, I'm faithful now, and I will be faithful in every moment in between. And his point to Jacob is this, I know that it's painful, I know that it seems like I've abandoned you, but I'm at work in the pain. I am at work in the pain. And so we probably all have things in our past where when we look back on them now, we have this perspective where we can say, oh, I see what God was doing there, right? I see how or why God was saying no to that prayer for so long. Now I can see how God was working out all that pain and all that difficulty for my good. Now I do, but my question is, how do we bring that future perspective and make it a present reality? So. I was talking about this concept with some of our staff this week and our college pastor, Will, actually reminded me of this, but we used to serve on a staff in Texas together and one of our friends, while we were there, his nine or 10 year old daughter was, uh, they found a mass behind her right eye. And so he was sharing with our staff just a couple days after their diagnosis and they, they get the news, I think that morning even, they get the news of, hey, it's cancerous. It's not looking good, like it, it's bad. Um, and so through tears, my buddy shares this with our staff, literally days after their, her diagnosis, and he says this. God is good, my daughter has cancer, and those two statements aren't mutually exclusive. And I'd forgotten about that completely, but I, I remember thinking now, what? Like, how could you say that? Your daughter has, she has, did you hear yourself, right? I remember thinking that. And so my question is, where does that perspective come from? How do we get that future perspective and make it a present reality? I mean, I think ultimately it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, but what do we do? Um, so I'm gonna give you three things. Three things that I think we can do to contribute to this, bringing this future perspective and making it a present reality. But before I do, I'm gonna say this. I don't think you're gonna like them. And the reason why is because they all fit into a category of what I like to call windshield time. 
So windshield time is just time on the road, just putting in the miles, right? It's where you have lived enough life where you've stacked enough moments on top of each other where life hurts or you receive this horrific news and it's difficult and you struggle and sometimes you just spiral out of control and you ask God the question like, how could this be meant for my good? And sometimes you try to control and manipulate it and then you just exhaust yourself and you get to the point where you can't do anything else and somehow, by God's grace, you make it through and you get enough windshield time in and you look back and go, oh, that's what God was doing in that. But that's windshield time. We stack enough of those moments on top of each other and we don't like that because we like fast. Right? We live in a, a world, a culture where everything is instant. Everything's available to us at our fingertips. We like automated and instant. Everything's delivered to us. Like we don't have to do anything. And the problem with that is the Bible says that sanctification is a slow process. The process of growing and maturation, of learning to trust the character and nature of God and becoming more like Jesus is a slow process. The Bible says it's one degree at a time. It's putting in the windshield time. So all three of these that I'm about to give you fall into that category. Let me give them to you here. Here's the first one. This is gonna blow your mind. You ready? Read your Bible. Um, and, and I need to clarify, um, because a couple weeks ago, Bill made a great point. He said a lot of times we approach reading the scriptures like a Tylenol, which means, hey, I have a headache. I need something from God, and so I'm gonna go read. And that's not a bad way to read your Bible. It's just not the best way. I use the illustration of, um, we call it like an ATM, Hey, I need money for today, and so I'm gonna go to the scriptures, I'm gonna withdraw what I need. And I think a, a healthy, a more robust, a deeper version of Christianity approach to reading our Bibles is viewing it like an investment account. We're, we're, we're sowing into it over and over and over again, and all of a sudden, we look back, there's all this compounding interest, and we go, man, I trust God right now. How did that happen? We read our Bibles that way. We immerse ourselves into God's story, and we keep these pages in front of us to remind us God sees me, he knows me, and he cares. So we read our Bible. The second one is this, we live in biblical community. Shouldn't be a surprise to you, community, Bible, church, right? And the reason why is because life is a fight. I told you before, life has a way of punching us in the mouth sometimes. It's a fight, and it's a fight that isn't intended to be fought alone. Sit in UFC where we're squaring off by ourselves. there's no one in our corner. This is a fight that's intended that we would surround ourselves with people who can help us remember that no matter how painful this moment is, God is at work in the pain. This is what happens in Genesis 31, that Jacob is so confident in God's working in his pain that he gets to share that with his wives. He gets to say, wives, I just didn't come out naturally. His two wives, um, wives. He goes to him and he says, listen, God was at work in my pain, and he's at work in your pain too. We get to do this together. My question for you is, do you have people in your life who help you remember that God sees you and knows you and cares? And maybe a, a tougher question to answer is this, do you, do you even let your guard down enough with those people so they can know how bad you're hurting? and remind you that he sees you and he knows and he cares. So we read our Bibles and we live in biblical community and then here's the last one, we pray. 
And I say prayer because ultimately this isn't a perspective that we can white knuckle our way into. This is a a perspective that's given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we should be asking for it, not just waiting and hoping, hey, maybe one day God will do this in my life. I surround myself with people who will remind me that God sees me and knows me and I immerse myself regularly investing in my life in the story of scripture going God sees me and he knows me and I pray that God would do what only he could do so that I could somehow, like my buddy, say if that devastating news comes, God is good, my life is painful and those two statements aren't mutually exclusive. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and and God graciously met him and their family and said, I see you, I am the God of Bethel, the God who is with you in your deepest, darkest moment, and I'll be faithful in this moment. And here's what happened. It didn't make the cancer go away. It didn't make the radiation and the chemo any less difficult for them, but somehow through all that, God showed up and he said, I was with you then and I'm with you now. I am working in this pain. And I wanna be honest with you, man. If I got that news about one of my children, I don't know how I would respond. Just in transparency, as one of your pastors, I don't know how I would respond if I got that news about one of my kids. And again, we have to have a deeper version of Christianity that has room for our failures and our doubts. Do we not? Because Christianity at its root is that God loves us not because we're perfect but because of the perfection of Christ. So why then do we think that our faith has to be perfect? There is a category of pain that is almost impossible to understand how God could be working it for good. And many of you have been stuck in that place in your mind since I started preaching because you've experienced it. Or someone you know and love have experienced it or you've been used by someone for their own personal gain and you're going, I don't know how in the world this could be used for good. And so I wanna answer that for you as honestly as I possibly can. I don't know either. I don't know how God is working through some of the atrocities that happen as a result of sin in the world. But what I do know is that the Bible says that there's coming a day where the sky is gonna crack open and Jesus, the son of God, is going to return and he is gonna make all things new. And on that day, the Bible says there will be no more sin and no more pain and there will be no more tears. And it goes on to say that God himself will wipe away every tear. On that day, we'll look back with greater perspective and we'll go, oh, that's what you were doing. That's how you were working that for my good. That's, how, that's why you said no when I begged you to take away my daughter's cancer. We'll say, oh. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, for now we've seen a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully, even as I am fully known. There's coming a day. So if that's you, please know you're not alone. If you're hurting this morning, you're not alone. This is what the church is for, a people who exist to help each other follow Jesus. And we may not have all the answers. In fact, I know we won't. But we wanna be a safe place for you to struggle. And not be like, come on, man, just have more faith. We'll come around you and say, man, I have no idea either how God could possibly be working that for your good, but can we pray for you? Can I serve you? Can I bring you a meal? Can I take care of your, whatever? Can I come around you in that space? And again, ultimately we pray because this is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so I just wanna invite you, when we're done singing today, 
If the Spirit is stirring in your heart right now, when we're done singing, there's gonna be a group of people, our prayer team, who would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. Come find for me. And we can just ask that the Spirit of God would do what only he could do to give you perspective to say that even though life is painful right now, God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. He sees you. He knows. He cares. And if you feel compelled by that ministry even and just saying, hey, man, I'm not hurting right now, but I would love to serve in that way. You heard on the announcement, there's a table out front. We'd love to invite you to even stop by and ask, hey, what's that mean? How could I be a part of the prayer team? What does it even mean? Love you to consider that. But ultimately, what we need to see is that some things don't come down, don't come down to having all the answers. Some things come down to trusting God the Father. So last weekend, my son had emergency surgery on his abdomen, and he's fine now, um, by God's grace, but in order for him to do the surgery, he had to have an IV, he's almost two years old, and so um, that was a painful process for him. I don't know if you ever had seen a two-year-old get an IV, or if you work in healthcare, but um, I don't, so it's first for me. So he sat in my lap, or I sat him in my lap, and he faced me, and I squeezed him against my chest. And one nurse held his arm while the other nurse dug around in there trying to get the IV, and, and the whole time, He's screaming his head off. And he can't communicate very well the kind of the deep feelings that he's, he didn't process it, can't articulate it, so he just screams. Um, and I haven't been able to ask him afterwards because I don't think he would remember, but um, my guess is what was going on in his mind in that moment was my arm hurts so bad, Dad, why are you letting them do this to me? Why is this happening to me? How could this be for my good? And what he doesn't know in that moment was that he needed that IV so that the surgeons could repair in him what would otherwise have caused him a great deal of pain. Far more pain than what he was experiencing in the moment. And I could have tried my best all day to prep him for it and to get him to understand here's why we have to do it, but he wouldn't get it because he's two. And so I hold him close while it happened and I tried to comfort him until it was over or when it was over. And I think oftentimes the same thing happens with us. God is so much bigger than us. The gap between my knowledge and wisdom and the knowledge and wisdom of my two-year-old is pretty big, right? But the gap between my knowledge and wisdom and God's wisdom is infinite. Because God knows everything. So God could try to explain to us all day why he's doing what he's doing and we still wouldn't get it. Because we don't understand the why. And just because we don't understand the why doesn't mean that God's not with us through it all. He sees us and he knows and he cares. Look at verse 13. God says, I'm the God of Bethel and now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Interesting, I always wanna point out the pattern you see in scripture. Now that you are convinced that I love you, go. Not go and earn my love, but now that you're convinced that I see you and I know and I care and I'm at work in the pain, go. God uses difficult circumstances in Jacob's life to get him where he wants him to be. God is working to fulfill his promise. The promise he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who says, I'm gonna give you offspring and blessing and I'm gonna bring you back to the land and he uses pain to get him there. Because if you remember, at the end of chapter 30, business for Jacob is booming. Life is good, he's got the deep pockets, everything's great, man. He can, he can acquire all the things, all the comforts the world has to offer him, but then you move to 31 and you start to see the pain. Relationally, man, with, your, with Laban, it's not working like it used to. My brother-in-laws are throwing shade at me, right? It's just not working the way he wants to, and God uses that 
Because here's the thing, do you think Jacob would wanna leave if life was great and he was golfing with Laban and his brother-in-laws on the, on the weekends? No, because we like to be comfortable. And just side note, I don't think you'd wanna go because moving is awful, is it not? Imagine moving 12 kids, two wives, 500 miles on camels. That's enough to keep anyone staying put. Verse 17, we read, Jacob arose and he set his sons and wives on camels and he drove away all his livestock and all his property that he gained. He went to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. He goes. God is at work in the pain and he uses Jacob's pain to get him where he wants him. And so I'm gonna share this quote with you. I know we're running out of time, but I'm gonna share this quote with you and I think it's helpful for us because what we want is we wanna be used by God like that, but we also wanna be comfortable. I want you to hear this because Tozer compares the human experience to a field and he, and he calls the fallow field as the unplanted field and there's a fruitful field that knows the pain of the plow. I want you to hear this. It should be on the screen. The fallow field is smug, is contented, is protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. Such a field, as it lies year after year, safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine. The picture of sleepy contentment. That sounds like the life that a lot of us pray for, is it not? I wanna be in the sunshine. I wanna be sleepily content. Tozer says, but it's paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life nor see the wonders of bursting seed. He says, fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living the protecting fence is open to admit the plow. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change and it's been upset and turned over and bruised and broken, but its rewards come hard upon its labor. The seed shoots up into the daylight. It's miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. He says all over the field, the hand of God is at work. And he says this, nature's wonders follow the plow. I think oftentimes we close ourselves off to what God wants to do in us because we wanna be comfortable. Keep the fence closed, protect, self-protect, right? We wanna be pain-free, but we wanna be used by God. That's not the world we live in. There's coming a day where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we should long for that day. But in the meantime, we have been given this promise from God and we see it in Genesis 31 that all of our tears, or rather none of our tears will be wasted. That God is at work in the pain. So God says to Jacob, now arise and go. And Jacob doesn't know what he's gonna find there. Remember, 20 years ago, he left because Esau wanted to kill him. And the scriptures lead us to believe that Jacob still thought that would be the case, but he goes anyways. Why? Because he knows God can be trusted. Maybe you're thinking right now, man, that sounds awesome. I would love God to use me, but I, I've got this sin in me. I've got this thing in me that I haven't been able to get rid of. No way God could use me. Look at verse 19. Now, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, I don't know what shearing sheep entails, um, but it's apparently a long and difficult process, takes several days, Laban's gone. Verse 20, Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had, and he rose and he crossed the Euphrates and he set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. So this is intended to be shocking to us. Jacob just had this huge spiritual win, right? With his wives, he just said, man, I'm recounting the pain. God's called us to go, but he's working in it. 
He was in my pain and he's working in your pain and then he goes back to his old ways. He slips out, doesn't tell anybody and just kind of takes his stuff and leaves. He's afraid. He downshifts into his old ways and what happens here is he loses sight of who God is. He forgets that God knows and cares and sees him and what I want you to see in that He gets stuck in his pain, stuck looking at his arm, saying, this hurts, this hurts. How could this be for my good? And so he acts in fear. And what I want you to see in that and be encouraged is this. Jacob has not arrived. Jacob is still putting in the windshield time. He's still a work in progress. And you know what God doesn't say to him? If that's how you're gonna be, forget it. If that's how you're gonna act, then don't worry about the promise of your lost cause. In fact, we see the opposite. We'll see this next week. God meets Jacob again renews his covenant, renews his promise, changes his name from Jacob to Israel and says, God's with you, you are my people. Friends, your pain in life doesn't mean that God's forgotten you. He sees it all. He's with you. And your failures in life do not make this any less true. We gotta do this quick, I'm running out of time, so I'm just gonna summarize the rest of the chapter. I got one more thing I want you to see. So what happens from here is that Laban finds out that his his family's gone. Jacob and his family gone. He comes back and he's like, what the heck, where'd they go, right? And basically, he sees that all the people that he has repeatedly used for his own personal gain have abandoned him. And he responds as you would expect him to respond. Verse 29 of Genesis 31, he says, God shows up to me in a dream and I was gonna come kill you, but he said not to hurt you, but I want you to know it's in my power to hurt you, which is not because God said, hey, don't do it. But Laban's just reaching for any type of control he can get. And so this is ironic in this space, but he and Jacob, Laban and Jacob have this huge back and forth, right? They kind of argue. Jacob throws his speech that he's been rehearsing for 20 years on him and says, take that, here's why I'm right. Laban goes, here's why I'm right. But what becomes really clear is that Jacob was in the right and Laban basically just tucks his tail and they, and they make this weird truce. Um, they basically make an agreement where, and Laban says, well, fine. I'm right, but if you think you're right, then let's just make an altar here and I won't cross it and hurt you and you don't cross it and hurt me, right? He's still just kind of reaching for things. So you can read that later this afternoon. It's exhilarating. Um, But what I want you to see is how this ends for Laban. Verse 55 of Genesis 31. Early in the morning, Laban arose and he kissed his grandchildren and he kissed his daughters and he blessed them and then Laban left and he returned home. So he goes back home empty-handed. He goes back home without his grandchildren, without his children, and without all the wealth that he used them to get. He goes back home empty-handed. And, and what I want you to see in that is that this reality of God seeing and knowing and he sees our pain and he's at work in our pain, it's not just that he's bringing about good for his children, even though people have meant them evil, it also means that he's not willing to sweep evil under the rug. He's not willing to just let it go and just say, okay, I'm gonna really love my children. I'm gonna make up for what they stole from you. No, he says, I'm gonna wipe away every tear. There won't be a wasted tear. Laban will get what's coming for him, and he does. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, you live peaceably with all, not because it's getting swept under the rug, beloved, he says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so God is at work in the pain and Jacob and his family, they're saved from Laban. And as we follow the lineage of God's people through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we can see glimpses as they're being saved and delivered from their enemies, we see glimpses in that of a salvation that's coming that goes far deeper than that. 
And here's the point. God brings Jacob where he wants to be through his pain. He's faithful to the promise to give Jacob offspring and blessing and to bring him back to the land. But Jacob had no idea all that God would do through his family. Through his dysfunctional family, one day, the savior of the world would come to take away the sins of the world. Jacob had no idea that's what God was doing in his life. But you know where he is now? Seeing fully. And he goes, oh, that's what you were doing. Life is painful, but God is at work. And in the moment, man, it's so easy for us to say, how could this possibly be working for my good? And what we need to remember in that space is what God says to Jacob in a dream. He says, lift your eyes up. Only he doesn't want us to see this dream about goats being spotted and speckled and modeled because that doesn't do anything for us. He says, lift your eyes up and look no further than the cross of Christ. Because there has never been a single person who has more right to say to God, why are you letting this happen to me than Jesus as he approaches the cross to die for sins that he didn't commit. And he's in the garden. The Bible says that he's weeping drops of blood and he begs the father. He says, will you let the cup pass from me? I don't want to drink it. It's too painful. I don't know why I have to, like, he's just in that space. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. He trusts God the Father. He doesn't try to self-protect or choose comfort over being used by God. And as a result, God works good in that pain. The most horrific evil that's ever happened on the planet is Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross. And he because of that wound, because of that pain, because God held him there. And he says, why, this hurts, why would you let this happen to me? Because God held him there. You and I are in this room, in this moment, and we can confidently say that we are loved by God. Not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. If you stand with me, let me pray for us. So we're gonna sing and respond to this good news today, that God sees, that he knows, and that he cares for us. Let's pray. Lord, you're good, and that's an understatement. And I know there are people in this room right now who are so busted and so hurting that it's hard for them to see past the pain. But I pray, God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would meet them in this moment, that as we sing, even in the valley, you're faithful that we would be able, be able to, as a people together, articulate that as truth. God, we believe it. On the mountain, you're faithful. In the valley, you're faithful. That, God, is the work of the Spirit. God is good. Life is hard, but those two statements aren't mutually exclusive. God, help us to believe it. Help us to sing. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.